this last Friday was a holiday in, in the United States. And it was a day that we, we recognize our veterans and those that have been in the service. And I'd like to, if there are any veterans here or active members of the military, would you stand for us for a moment, please? Thank you. We honor you this morning, and we, we thank you for your service. And I was thinking about that word, service, because it really is a service on our behalf, isn't it? It's a service of protecting, it's a service of being there in case there is a need that arises. And whatever the need that may be, those individuals have gone out on our behalf and have served. The word for service literally means to act an act of help or assistance to come alongside and help somebody. And, and what a great word for our veterans, but what a great word for all of us as Christians, a word that should apply to every one of us. We're all veterans in the, in the war of God, in, in the spiritual warfare. We're all veterans in, in being servants to help each other. We're all in the service. Congratulations, you're enlisted this morning. And we want to talk about that this morning because we live in a world where leadership is rarely defined by service. Leadership is defined by authority, by power, by prominence. Leadership is, is exercised as a way to manipulate people, to get people to do what we want. But in God's economy and in God's plan, that is not what He calls leadership. That is what He calls pride. And so this morning, as we come to our text in Mark, we come to the central point of the Gospel, the key verses of the Gospel. We get to the purpose, the mission of Jesus Christ, and He's sharing this as He is training His disciples to carry the torch when He is gone. To pick up where He left off. And He's saying, this is my mission, and this is your mission. You're enlisted. Congratulations. So turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And we want to take the next couple weeks actually and talk about servant leadership. Today looking at the, the text in Mark chapter 10 and the example of Christ. Next week looking at what does that mean at village? What does servant leadership look like at village? What does servant leadership look like in your homes? And I'll just say up front, men, come next week. I challenge you to be here next week and let's talk about leadership. Let's talk about what it means. But today is, is the foundation for that. In Mark chapter 10, and we'll start at verse 32. And if you remember the scene, Jesus has finished up His ministry in Galilee up north, and He now is heading to the cross. And He is intentionally taking a journey from the north to the south, making His way to Jerusalem. And in the last couple chapters, it's been that journey. And on that journey, he's been, been telling the disciples what's going to happen. He's been predicting his death. He's been training. And they've been struggling like the blind man who was partially healed, which, be, which, which began this section. Remember, he could see a little bit, but he couldn't see the whole picture. And that's where the disciples are at. They can see a little bit. They're getting more and more, and, and they're trying to understand, and Jesus is correcting them but they still don't see the whole picture. And Jesus, as the patient teacher, keeps teaching and teaching. 
And so we come to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. I'm going to read the, the three verses, 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And, and they always referred to going up to Jerusalem, not that it was north, but that in elevation it was up. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise." Imagine if you're there. Imagine if you're one of the disciples and you're walking along and the disciples follow the the rabbi and they're walking along behind him and he pulls them together and says, this is what's going to happen. Now, was that an encouraging list of things? No, this would be like if if we got together and we said, we're going to do a mission trip. And the elders have decided that, that they're going to respond to the need in Afghanistan of no churches. And so the elders are going to go, and we know for a fact that we will be captured, and we will be tortured, and we will be killed. And we'd like volunteers to go with us. That's what Jesus did in this passage. Now, if you remember, this is actually the third time in this short sequence, in this journey, that he's brought it up. And he keeps bringing it up because they don't get it. Their mindset of the kingdom still, and we're going to see that in this text, still is Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans and set up a throne and rule and we're going to have a great life here on earth. And so this third time, Jesus brings it up again. He says, we're going to Jerusalem. This is his his most detailed description of his death. He is saying these things before he even gets there. Before any of this happens. And he, he says where they're going. We're going to Jerusalem. And some of the new things that you see is that he will be given over to the Gentiles in verse 33. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And we read that and we're like, oh, okay, that's who's going to kill him. The Romans crucify and that's, that's what's going to happen. But that statement is packed with things from their culture because if you remember, as Pastor Andrew taught, Gentiles were considered scum. They they were low. They were the dogs. And so for someone to be delivered by Jews to the Gentiles was the ultimate uh, ultimate insult. You could not insult someone more, reject someone more, and hate someone more. And so by Jesus adding that, that piece of information in, he's saying, I will be hated. I will be insulted. I will be rejected. And then in verse 34, he goes on and says, they will mock him. They will spit on him and flog him, beat him to a pulp and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. The disciples still don't quite get that last phrase. They don't quite understand. And and the the first time Jesus shared, remember Peter came up to him and said, Lord, you're, you're wrong. Jesus, you're wrong. That's not what's going to happen. That shouldn't happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He calls, he calls Peter Satan. 
The second time this happened, they, they again right afterwards are talking among themselves, amongst themselves, and they're arguing of who's going to be the greatest. Because they think this is God setting up His kingdom. And here again, we're going to see that same pattern happen again. If you notice in verse 32, there's some interesting words of how the the followers were reacting to this. They were amazed. They were amazed and those who followed were afraid. There's a lot of talk. Okay, why were the disciples amazed at all this? And, And why was there fear and Probably there were others following along that were more afraid than, than amazed. And if, if, if we think about what Jesus' purpose is here and what He's doing, the disciples are interacting with a man that is resolutely determined to go to Jerusalem. Luke even used that word. He, he set His face on it. He was resolute toward going to Jerusalem. And so they're, they're, they're walking behind this man who knows he's going to his death and is determined to do it. Wouldn't that mess with your mind a little bit? Who are we following? It, it would create this sense of, of not understanding and amazement and fear because they don't know what they're following him into. But Jesus knew what his purpose was. He knew why he was going. And he'll share that with them in the verses that follow. Point number one, you're probably thinking I forgot that. Jesus is resolute in servanthood no matter the cost. Jesus is resolute in servanthood no matter the cost. This wasn't a man that showed up in Jerusalem and accidentally was crucified. This was a man that knew they were going to not only crucify him, but utterly reject him, hate him, mock him, beat him, torture him. And he said, let's go. I'm leading the way. Get in line. Amazing. What kind of man does that? What kind of man is so determined to be a servant and to to reach out and save a people, a people that hate Him and a people that mock Him with our sin. And He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. Let's go. So Jesus was resolute. The cost does not deter the servant Savior. He knows the cost. We sang this morning that He counted the cost. He absolutely did. And He's teaching yet again to the disciples, this is what's going to happen. This is what it means to follow me. It means you count the cost and you determine to be a servant. You determine to be about the mission. And nothing else matters. The bottom of the section of point number one. How do we take this example and put it into practice? And I put be intentional, be resolved. Be determined that we will serve. That we will be about God's message. That we will be about His mission. And nothing, no matter the cost, will stand in the way. That if God asks us to go to Afghanistan, even though we know that the cost is our lives, we'll gladly go. 
Last night we were reading a missionary story together and about um, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and um, fascinating discussion with little kids and a good discussion. But these five men that, that went knowing they were going to a brutal tribe and the deception that happened and the, the death that happened, they willingly gave their lives so that some could be in eternity with Christ. That's the kind of intentionality we need. Of being, making a choice, making a decision to say, I will give all to be a servant. But the story goes on in verse 35. Disciples hear this, and they're processing this. They probably were thinking of the rise again in three, way, three days, a little metaphorically. Jesus used parables a lot, and so... I could imagine them thinking, oh, three days, he rises again. Three days, he sets up his kingdom. Yes. It's going to happen like we think. And so James and John, and we know from one of the other Gospels, their mother comes with them. James and John, in verse 35, sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Just think about that phrase for a minute. I hear the chuckles. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's like your kids saying, will you say yes to whatever I'm about to ask? Will you? (laughs) And, And as a parent, you've been down that road. You know the answer is no. You say yes and you're giving them candy for a month. And nothing, whatever it is. And they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And I'm convicted by that in our prayer lives. I'm convicted by how we come to the Savior. And we laugh about this, but do we ever come to our Lord and Savior in prayer? And we don't use those words, but we say, God, this is what I want you to do. And we pray, now Jesus wants us to bring our request to Him. But it's the attitude that's at question here. The attitude is, we want you to do what we want. But our attitude in prayer is to say, Lord God, this is what's on my heart, but it's about what you want. It's about what you want. And it's the attitude of someone lording it, lording leadership, exercising power versus a servant. Would a servant ever come to his master and say, okay, here's what you're going to do? No! That servant would be beaten or or fired or whatever. He would be disciplined. But they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. story goes on in verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus knows what they're going to ask. He knows it's going to be a teaching moment. And so he says, okay, what do you want? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. We want to sit next to you, Jesus. When, when, you, when your kingdom comes, because you said in the three days you're going to rise again, and we think that's your kingdom. When your kingdom comes, we want to sit one on your right hand and one in your left hand. What are they asking for? Again, there, there's things here that in our culture we don't understand. You, you sit where you sit, and the right and left hand aren't necessarily that important. But there's two things that the disciples, these two, are asking for. They are asking for authority 
and they are asking for honor. They're asking for authority, and they're asking for honor. First authority, when a king sat on his throne and he had chairs beside him, the chair on his right was, was the place of prominence. And that comes to the honor. And the chair on his left, though, was the second place of prominence. And these two were the king's advisors. They were the second and third in command. And so when the king had a decision to make, those two, because they were sitting next to the king, they had his ear. And so they'd lean over and say, you know, next to the king, I think you should do this, or why don't you do this? And so that Peter, or James and John, sorry, they left Peter out. Very interesting. You have an inner circle and two of them come. James and John come and say, we want to sit on your right and your left. When the king's not there, the person on the right and left were the ruling parties. They were the next in line to rule. And so they are asking for the vice presidency of the kingdom of God. Wow. They're asking for authority. The second thing is they're asking for honor. At any table setting, whenever there was a banquet, whenever there was a meal, the guest of honor was placed on the right of the host. That was the place of honor. That was the place of preeminence. And these two are hearing that the kingdom's coming. They're just weeks away from the cross at this point. And they're not realizing it's the cross, and they're thinking it's the kingdom, and they're going to get their request in first. Because, you know, God helps those that help themselves. Which is not God's way. God honors those that are humble, that are servants, that are seeking Him. And these two miss the servanthood. They miss the sacrifice of what Jesus said. And they want to protect themselves. They want the place of authority and honor. Point number two out of this this paragraph. Even though we've heard servanthood, we naturally seek power and promote self. I know, it's a long point. I think I just left a couple blanks though. Even though we've heard servanthood, we've heard it taught, we talk it, we, we know all about servanthood and that we should be servant leaders, we naturally seek power and promote self. That's our natural man. It's our default. It's what we revert back to. When we're not being intentional, which is point number one, then we're being self-centered. Point number two. And we see the comparison of Jesus and the disciples. And so down at the bottom of point number two in application, we need to be searching. We need to be searching our hearts. We need to be searching ourselves. We need to be recognizing any self-centeredness. Because it's there. It, 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 it's not something that we have to decide to be self-centered. It's there and it's a matter of if, we, if, it, if it oozes out, if it creeps out, if it surfaces. Great ways to begin to, to check our self-centeredness, especially in relationship to each other, to, to positions of honor, is to, to start to look at what I'm thinking when I'm upset or when I'm frustrated. What gets me frustrated? Because usually what gets me frustrated is an insight to what's coming out of my heart. 
Why am I frustrated about things? Think about authority and honor. We like to have a say in things. We like to have our opinions heard. Sometimes we get frustrated in a body setting, in a church setting, when our way isn't taken. Maybe we're meeting and there's a disagreement and we're on the minority side and we get frustrated. That's all issues of power, not servanthood. That's issues of power and promoting self coming out. Maybe when we want recognition. Maybe when we're frustrated that, well, someone else's ministry got mentioned from the pulpit. Mine didn't. And you know what? Mine's more important to this church. Now you're all thinking, I would never say that. Don't we feel that sometimes? Don't we evaluate our ministries and our contributions and we still evaluate it by looking around us and and having a hierarchy of who's better, who's not, who's contributing more, who isn't? Those things are directly contrary to the example of Christ. We need to be searching, recognizing self-centered behavior. So let's go on and see what happens. See how Jesus answers them. They've just asked the question. In verse 38 to 40, Jesus answers, well, the whole thing, but we'll we'll take this next chunk. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. I hear the chuckles again. They don't know what they just said. They don't know what that means. And Jesus said to them, well, I added the well. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And the implication that God the Father has prepared it for, that He has decided. And it's an interesting an interesting answer because Jesus here is countering their selfish ambition. And point number three is Jesus counters selfish ambition with sacrifice and submission. With sacrifice and submission. See both of those points in his answer. The first is sacrifice. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And that doesn't just mean that they share a Dr. Pepper or share some grape juice or something like that. Cup was used for divine judgment on sin. In the Old Testament, that was the reference to cup. In fact, some of the verses in the Old Testament, Psalm 75, verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. You who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So sharing in the cup of Christ was to share in the coming wrath of God on the sin that He was to carry. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And so cup was to share in His death the torture, the flogging, the mocking, the insults. But worse than that, the serving of taking our sin upon Himself. 
And so Jesus counters first their selfish ambition with the idea of sacrifice. You want the places of honor? This is what it means. You suffer the most. Wow. And he said, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Thinking of the baptism into his death with him, being submerged in suffering. Both of these are about sharing in his suffering, making a sacrifice. And their answer is, we will. Or we can. And I think of Yoda. Sorry for those Star Wars fans. I've been introducing my my sons to, to Star Wars for the first time. Remember, Luke says, well, I'm not afraid. And what does Yoda say? How does everyone know that? <laughs> I'm not going to do a Yoda. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. You can't do that. You, you will be. <laughs> and that, that's what I thought of first when I'm hearing the words of Christ. When, they, when He says, can you share in my cup? Can you share in my, my suffering? And they said, yeah, we can. And they don't know what they're saying. They, they think, oh yeah, I'm just going to go along with Jesus. It's going to be fine. And, and Jesus says, you will. You will. And we know that James was one of the first disciples martyred. Brutally. And we know that John was sent into exile. And they suffered. And they did. But moving on through that passage, the cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And we see an amazing picture of Jesus' submission to the Father. And, and in His example of servanthood and His, his example of how to have influence spiritually, He says it's about being a follower. It's about coming under submission. It's about being submissive to all that servanthood involves. Following well, suffering well. Be submissive to all that servanthood involves. See, Jesus can't promise a place of prominence at His glory. Think for a moment, what was the moment of his glory? On the cross, when he bore our sins and paid the price, that was his purpose, that was the mission, that was the moment of glory. And the right and left hand side were taken by two thieves, one of which we will see when we are in eternity with Christ. Disciples didn't know what they were asking. But Jesus, in getting to the heart of servant leadership, says it's about sacrifice and submission. By application on this, I would encourage you, as as we are rooting out selfish ambition and wanting to destroy that, put yourselves in places where sacrifice is necessary and submission is necessary. Voluntarily, intentionally, put yourselves in places where you aren't in charge, where you're not the leader, and where it's going to take personal sacrifice to accomplish it. 
that's how we start to root out selfish ambition and leadership. And it's hard, and it's not fun, and it's not easy. But it's what Jesus did. It's what Jesus did. Finally, grabbing the last four verses. Five verses. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they begin to be indignant at James and John. Don't you love it? Picture it. They're they're off to the side and they hear James and John's request. They're probably not indignant at the request. They're indignant that they got there first. That they thought of it first and like, oh great, now we're at the third and fourth seat. And so they respond indignantly because they did not get what they wanted. And we know that because Jesus calls them all together and has a little impromptu sermon. And he says, all of you, ambition is a problem. You're all getting it wrong. Let's talk. Walk with me. And so Jesus teaches. 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. And he begins by talking about the world's view of leadership and the world's view of influence. And it's about lording it over them and telling people what to do. And they're used to that with the Romans and with Herod. And so they would have understood that this worldly idea of leadership is not what they wanted. I remember when Jeffrey and Alicia, we first brought them into our home and, and Mark was talking to them and, and Mark is, is a firstborn. And he, he pulls Jeffrey aside one day and says, that, that's not how you do it here. I've lived here for years and you just got here. And so do what I say. That didn't work. <laughs> Still doesn't work. We, Mark and I had a little chat after that. But it was about our natural bent of how we lead and how we influence. We want to be a master over people. And we think that if anything's going to get done, that is how it's going to get done. And Jesus is saying, that's not what we're about. As I studied management, we studied different styles of management. As we looked at the, the style of using authority and using position to influence and to manage, it's a tempting thing because it will work initially. It works really well initially for about six months. And then it falls apart because we're not leading out of influence, we're leading out of position. And it's interesting to me how how the world, as it studies management, is starting to come to some of the same conclusions. And maybe if we had just listened to God's plan for leadership and influence, we wouldn't have to spend thousands of dollars on seminars. But then he goes on in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. In the key verses of Mark, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And we, we, we had the world's idea of leadership and now we get to God's idea of leadership. And it's to be a servant. It's to be a slave. And, and look closely at those verses because 43 and 44 
are parallel. And, and Jesus is doing something here where He's making a specific point. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And He uses a word for servant there, diakonos, which is where we get deacon, of one who waits on tables. So you think of someone that's helping serve food and, and doing things for others, helping people with their needs. And, and that's sometimes what we think of as servant leadership. Jesus goes further. And in verse 44, he, he restates it, but with stronger words, intensifying the argument and saying, okay, yes, that's, that's part of servant leadership, but it's not enough. Let's go further. And in verse 44, he says, and whoever would be first among you must be, and you notice a different word, slave of all. Slave of all. And that word for slave, doulos, is a word that was much stronger than just a servant. It was a word that represented someone that their entire purpose in life was to benefit another person. It wasn't just doing nice things for someone. It's a heart that says, I am under you, I am here for you, I am here to serve you. To be completely at the disposal of the Master. Catch that? To be completely at the disposal of the Master. And we read that and we're like, I'm okay if that's God. But Jesus is saying, that's how you're to be to each other. To view each other as our masters. To be completely at their disposal. And this was a complete paradigm shift. This was a complete turning upside down of, of everything they thought about leadership and authority and influence and the Savior. Because the Messiah was here to rule. Set things straight. He wasn't here to be a servant. But they didn't understand the servant Savior. They didn't understand. Plato was once asked, how can anyone be happy when he is the slave of someone else at all? And that's what we struggle with, I think, with servanthood in the church. Well, how can I be happy if, I, if I'm at someone else's beck and call? How can I be happy if, if my goal is to serve someone else? That doesn't make sense. Jesus says it's not about your happiness. It's about the body of Christ. It's about serving one another. And then you will find contentment and joy. And finally, verse 45. We end with this. Because Jesus knows that this is impossible on our own, and so He comes to the way that it's possible and the ultimate example. For even the Son of Man, and if you remember, we've talked about the Son of Man that's wording from Daniel chapter 7, referring to the, to the Messiah, to the one who is the bringer of the kingdom, literally. And so the Son of Man represented someone that is the ultimate authority, the one that's going to bring the kingdom of God in. And Jesus intentionally uses that. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He had every right to be served. He's the King. But He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Think about the word ransom. It literally meant to buy something back. 
whether it be a person that was in debt, whether it be a, a servant, whether it be land, to buy something back. And Jesus paid the purchase price to buy us, to redeem us from slavery to sin. And in your Bibles, if, if, you, if you like to underline, this may be a weird word to underline, I would underline the word right after ransom, the word for. Because the, the, the word for for, it's a simple word for us, but there's all kinds of nuances in the original language. And, and the word here, auntie, is instead of or in place of. Instead of or in place of. And what Jesus is saying is, I came to be a ransom in your place. All of those things that are going to happen to me that I described in the first paragraph, I am taking those in your place. That's what it means to be a servant. Without him taking those in our place, there is no salvation. There is no heaven. There is no eternity with God. But rather, He substituted Himself for us, paid the penalty for our death, endured the wrath of God, became the propitiation for our sins so we could spend eternity with Christ. And His argument is this. If the King and Creator of the universe can be a servant, how much more can you and I? He had the greater distance to step down. We don't. And so when we think of servanthood, we need to be intentional. We need to be searching for areas of pride and selfish ambition in our lives. We need to be seeking Him and, and seeking to, to come under His authority and submission but we need to be following his example as our king. Challenge you this week. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to serve? And I'm not talking God or Satan because that is the choice as well. But as we serve God, who are we going to serve in the body? Who are we going to put above ourselves? What needs are we going to meet? What hug are we going to give? What smile are we going to give? Who are you going to go out of your way to serve this week? Because if Christ made the ultimate sacrifice, how much more can we make small sacrifices to be his body and be his family? Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I thank you for the, your death on the cross. I thank you for that ultimate act of servanthood where you took our place and were willing to die in our place so we don't have to, for our benefit, so we can proclaim your glory. Lord, may we, in small ways, follow your example. May we not be here to be served, but to serve and to give our lives so people can see you and find you and come to you. In Jesus' name.